this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. Today is our last episode of our first ever quarterly co-host. I hope you've enjoyed this little segment. Let us know. And uh, at the end of this episode, I will tell you who's coming up in the next one. But for now, let's jump into the intro. We'll talk about today's episode. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplur. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to change the perception of safety. So if you're new here, hit that subscribe button, follow button, like button, whatever it is on whatever platform you are listening slash watching us on. I'm sure it'll do good things on the old magical algorithms. Before we jump into today's content, just a quick message from our sponsors. Rebranding Safety YouTube channel and podcast is sponsored by Paradigm Human Performance HSE subscription service. So what is that? Well, it's the perfect solution for those small and medium-sized enterprises, those people that are spinning all the plates, juggling all the balls, and they really just don't know when they're coming and going. We've all been there, whether you're a startup, whether you're a small and medium-sized enterprise, or whether you are working for an SME, you know how hectic it can be. And sometimes safety can just fall at the wayside of that. Not intentionally, we just kind of, we, we probably should should really look at that one day. You know, you don't intentionally mean it to fail it or, or not do it or anything like that. It just kind of happens. It's just kind of a thing that just falls by the wayside. No one's fault. It's life. But Paradigm have the solution for you. Paradigm have a global mission to just help everyone learn. They want worker safety to be the DNA of they want worker safety to be the DNA of every workplace. And they are doing such an amazing job at it. But they also know that you need to satisfy your regulatory, legal, and industry compliance. And those two worlds need to work together. So as human and organizational performance experts, they put together this HSE subscription service. Starting at just £99 a month, you can get all the support you need, all the kickstart that you need to make sure you're on top of all that base level compliance, but with a little bit of human and organizational performance woven in through it. So this is your decluttered systems, everything you need to get going. So check them out in the website description that's in below, or you can ring them straight up in the number that's below, or you can email them as well in the number below. If you go to their website and you're not really sure about it, then sign up for the learning organization webinar, and you can just get a taste for what the Paradigm team are all about. You can get to meet them and listen to some amazing people and learn some amazing content. So check that out as well on their website. But thank you very much to Paradigm for sponsoring Rebranding Safety. I love what Paradigm and Teresa and the whole team are doing. And I wouldn't have aligned with them. I wouldn't have partnered with them at Rebranding Safety if I didn't think what they're doing lined up with the values of Rebranding Safety and helped us achieve what we're trying to achieve. So if this fits for you, if you're that small, medium-sized enterprise really looking for some, some real top-notch support, 
then this is the package for you 100%. So go check them out, website below, email below, number below, everything you need to go check them out. And finally, just a quick note from my company, Project Miletium. It's the mastermind community. It's a professional development community for anyone that's dealing with safety, risk, or anything like that, be it in your full-time role or your operational role. This is a place to be challenged, to learn more, to share ideas, help people with the challenges that you're de- get help from the people that, with your challenges and help people with their challenges. There we go. It's a mixture of online calls, uh, online resources and courses as well and a LinkedIn group that's private and is so content rich. Whether you're towards the tail end of your career and you want to give back or you're at the beginning of your career and you have something to give because you have value as well, but you've also got a lot to learn and 100% this is for you. Or maybe you're in the middle of your profession and you feel like it's just plateaued a little bit. You're not really taking that next step. This will help you 100%. The feedback we're getting from our members, they're loving it. The value they're getting is amazing. And I love it. I just really enjoy being on all the calls. And my co-founder, Colin Nottage, is exactly the same. So go check out www.projectmiletium.com or the website's in the description below. Or you can message me on LinkedIn and I'll hook you up with a free trial. So you can come and check that out first. Without further ado, let's get into today's content then. Laura Orcott has been our quarterly co-host, our first ever quarterly co-host, and she has been running it for the last three weeks. And this episode is the last one. It's the last one from Laura. It's been amazing. We've been talking to CEOs, CEOs, CEOs. We've been talking to CEOs, um, managing directors, CEOs, people that are the, the top of the business, the ultimate responsible person, and trying to find out what they want from the safety profession. What does safety look like in their eyes and how have they dealt with that through COVID? And I won't introduce today's guest. I'll leave it to Laura to do that. But thank you very much from the bottom of my heart, Laura, for making this quarterly co-host just work. Like it was an idea that we thought was going to be good, but we weren't really sure as per usual if it was until we did it and we did it and you nailed it. So I'm looking forward to the next one, which at the end of this podcast episode, I will tell you all about. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with our co-host, Laura Orcott. Right, Nick, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Laura, do you want to, as your, oh, it's your last quarterly co-host. I know, I'm devastated. What are you going to do without me? (laughs) I don't know. We've got uh, Nick Fisher coming up next, um, which nobody knows about yet. So there you go. There's an official announcement. Uh, I won't won't talk about that too much. I'll do that in another episode. But (laughs) he's got got himself... A bit of a, a bit pressure now, isn't there? Like, I yeah, think this definitely. has been really good. Yeah, definitely. I set good. the bar high for the, yeah. the quarterly co-host. So uh, definitely. Yeah. And he's gone. He's gone brave. He's not doing guests. He's talking uh, just about his stuff. And I was like, mm, okay, different. So I like that. I like that. Good. I'll tune in. I'll tune in. No pressure yeah. on you, mate. <laughs> yeah, no pressure, Rob. Yeah, no pressure. Right. Do you want to just give us a, a summary of the of what you're trying to achieve in this this quarterly co-host, and then introduce your uh, our guest today? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thank you for having me back again, uh, third and final time. Um, Hopefully you've been listening to to the the podcast this quarter, if not, just a really brief overview. So what I wanted to do with with my sessions is try and give um, you guys an insight to business as a whole, as opposed to just health and safety. So I wanted to introduce you to 
you know, managing directors, C-suite professionals, CEOs, people that really know the ins and outs of, of a business, of commerciality, of, um, you know, the stuff that, that makes the company go on a day-to-day -day basis. Because I truly believe if we keep health and safety completely siloed, we're never going to progress it to where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, so that's a very, very brief overview. Hopefully you've been enjoying it. Uh, we've got Nick joining us today for our final uh, final episode. So I won't I won't try and summarise. Nick, please crack on. Tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. And thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, I, I suppose a quick summary for me. I'm I'm currently on a sabbatical after uh, after five years uh, as a chief executive in an organisation. Uh, if you are ever going to take a sabbatical, doing it at the start of a pandemic, I can highly recommend <laughs> in terms of avoiding grey hairs and stress. Um, <laughs> so I, have, I have slight more of a tan than I would do if I was uh, I was back in work. Um, but I was I spent five years as the chief executive of the UK's main infrastructure skills body um, for the utility industry. So gas, power, wow. water and waste management. Um, I'd uh, the rest of my my sort of career. I was asked to say a little bit about where I started from. And I started a long, long time ago, basically in administration, in, uh, in engineering sales and in, inside salesperson and learning the ropes of engineering internally and learning to work with customers. And it became an external salesperson and then an external sales and engineering person. And one thing led to the other until it became national sales and marketing manager. And, and it grew from there over many, many years. And, um, and at that point, uh, I was taking on corporate affairs, public affairs, and starting to move more and more into areas of um, uh, regulation, government policy. Uh, and I actually moved in the end uh, to change to go across to be part of the, the main policy body for the water industry, the regulated water industry. So a complete change from sales. Um, and I did a period in that um, working, uh, representing the industry, then representing the customer. I uh, did three and a half years as a deputy chief executive for the government's statutory customer body. Okay. Um, and one thing led to another on policy uh, to become a, a policy director in rail uh, and, uh, and and various changes. So so I've ended up in utility infrastructure, um, water, gas, power, waste management uh, and the rail industry uh, and quite a wide, uh, quite a wide remit on uh, UK and European policy. As I say, corporate affairs, sales, marketing, all those areas. So when I moved into a CEO role, it's rather handy because you are in that role, you are not expected to be an expert in each subject, but you're going to need to survive yeah. in each subject. <laughs> uh, and obviously, we'll come on to health and safety because it kind of sits at the top of the tree, really. Yeah, but, uh, but, you know, you are going to have to have a working knowledge to be able to lead a business uh, and work with a board and work with all your customers and, and key stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So so that's a little mm -hmm. bit about me. It was I can't say it was a deliberate path to where I ended up. But by the time I got there, I couldn't have done the job without each component part of what I'd learned along the way. Absolutely. Do you know what's really interesting, Nick, is actually the, the three, oh, well, you're the third CEO that, that we've interviewed for, the, for this session. You've all had quite different backgrounds. Um, so it, there's obviously not sort of one route to, to CEO. Mm. I know uh, we had Janet in the first one, came from accounting, mm. um, and then Richard was from, you know, manufacturing, and then yourself from sales and then into sort of marketing. So quite a different uh, skill set from, from each of you. Um, mm. One of the, the major things we do struggle with in health and safety is getting to board level, you know, being able to have those conversations at board level being um, you know, taken seriously as a, as a, a C-suite level professional. So do you think there are key skills that you need to have to get to that sort of level? Something that, you know, that really makes you stand out? 
Well, in terms of becoming a chief executive, um, the, the process of, of getting to the interview to get the role requires you to stand out. Yeah. So so either you'll be I mean, my my particular thing is to have businesses that aren't necessarily working that well and then to transform. Them. That's that's my my particular skill. So so you get required to do one thing. If you're if you go into a very different type of business, either highly commercial, highly regulated, mm -hmm. you may not need to do that transformation. It may be steady as it goes, but it may require you to get far more drive for efficiency, far more drive for return for investors. And, and then and so all of that demands different things of the chief executive. But when it comes around to getting health and safety into the C-suite, the, the reality is, is that it should be there all the time. And, and it always should have been there all the time. And the simple reason I say that is if you if, if people are listening to this or watching this and are wondering, well, how do I get it into the boardroom? Just think about the consequences if health and safety isn't the priority. What are the consequences when you as a chief executive in that role? or on the C-suite group, uh, find that somebody has died, lost a limb, uh, mental health issues, all the things that come through health and safety, the consequences of that are unthinkable. Mm. So, so one of the things as a chief executive is to make sure that there is no debate. Health and safety is number one. Uh, and in my, my working life, health and safety has always been the first item on board papers, yeah. Uh, most companies have a finance and audit committee and the audit committee, you know, you need a good chair of the audit committee and a good committee to push the executive team. They have to push. Uh, and if you've got people, as, as I was lucky enough to have on my committee, who are health and safety experts, they will push. But the consequences of not pushing are, are just unthinkable. And the idea that somebody wouldn't go home at night or wouldn't go home at night to resume their life and their families and all the things that are going on because of a decision made at work is just, yeah. it's certainly not a place I would want my career to be. And I, and I couldn't sleep at nights if I did. So, so for me, it's, it's, um, there is no discussion about it. Health and safety, number one. And then you work back to the other really hard commercial realities of a business, including profit. It's still way up ahead of that. And if the investors don't like it and the board don't like it, well, maybe you're in the wrong business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, that's it's music to our ears. That's exactly what we want to hear from people. Um, to play devil's advocate slightly, we hear this from a lot of companies that they put safety as number one. It is their number one priority, but I don't know if that's necessarily always the truth because I think you know profit and things like that do do kind of get in the way. I don't know if you found that, James, in your career or. Well, my, yes, yeah, definitely. There's a plat platitudes, I think, are rife within the, within safety. I'm I, not saying, I, Nick, I, I, I love that you're completely committed to, to health and safety. So definitely not, not saying this is you, but it, that I've known some. She's calling you a liar, basically, Nick, straight away. <laughs> she just, she's going straight in. She's a brutal host. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I would actually, sorry, Nick, I've interrupted you twice there. Um, That's I, right. I would just... I personally am not overly comfortable with safety being the first priority, really? which, might, okay. which might be surprising coming from the safety professional in the call. Um, <laughs> but, but for me, I think that there's only one company in the UK that had safety as their first priority. I think that's the HSE. I think that if, because how, how can, if you're doing, so you've, you've listed off Nick in your experience, some really high risk sectors like rail, for example, really high risk which inherently has um, has a, a, fa a fatal risk 
you know, there, there, there are fatal risks within, within rails. So if safety is your first priority, well, in theory, you wouldn't work, would you? So for me, I think that it, it becomes, and I don't mean that horribly or, or patronising, because I it, it, it's a debate that we're having within the safety profession, like can it, should it be our first priority? And, and I tend to fall on the side to say, no, it shouldn't. The company needs to make a profit and safety is just a, a thing that is, is an output of work. It's a form of work. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like if, if it was your first priority, you just wouldn't do any work. Or, <laughs> I do see or, where you're coming from. Yeah. I, I don't I don't see it that way. Let me let me tell you a okay. little bit why. Is that yeah. if you're gonna have, you know, you we talk about profits, you know, profits is an emotive word. Yeah. And very often it's used as a negative thing. So to make a profit means there's a trade-off and it's a bad business that makes profit. Well, without yeah. the profit, you can't pay the salaries, you can't, yeah. exactly, you, can't yeah. you know, you can't have well-being, you can't invest in health and safety. So it's it's a fact of the matter. And I used to work in a not-for-profit business. Well, the first thing we did was change that because it's a not-for-loss business. Um, mm. the fact that we reinvested our profits was our choice. Um, but it was a not-for-loss business because if well, we made a loss, we'd shut. Yes. So, so yeah. pro, you know, profit is absolutely up there, but you cannot, my experience says, you cannot be a profitable, a sustainably profitable business without health and safety being at the top. You can get a good year, you can get a, a really good year, and then you'll get a bad year. And as I said earlier, if you get the consequences where three or four workers don't go home at night, the knock on to effect to your business in terms of reputation, morale, mm-hmm. Uh, working conditions, trust in the management, every single aspect of the business, not least of which the you mentioned the health and safety executive, criminal prosecution, costs of millions of pounds against the profit line to put the business right. There is no such thing as a business that wants to be sustainably profitable that can't afford to put health and safety right at the top. Mm. So I think, I think, so that's point one. The second thing is I think you have to split it, is there's health and safety compliance which says you have a legal duty to do a series of things and we have a regulator like the health and safety executive to make sure that people obey that. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of what companies are dealing with on health and safety is cultural. Yeah. And and you can't use a stick on culture. So so it doesn't work to have some poor health and safety director brought in and being told you're accountable for health and safety. No, no, no. The chief executive is accountable for health and safety. They bring in an expert in health and safety to guide them, advise them, bring them new insights to drive performance, all sorts of things. But the buck sits with the chief exec. And ultimately, if you've got a strong chair uh, and a good board, it sits there too. But it's the chief executive's job to balance the profit trade-off with the sustainability of the business. And the more you get involved in investors, the more good investors will demand an impeccable health and safety record before they even get to the profit because that's what will protect it for them. Mm. Loss of reputation means poor profits for them. Yeah, yeah, very true. I think that's interesting. We, we're literally only one question in and we've stumbled onto this huge subject in the industry at the moment. Um, I mean, that this has been, you know, James, this has been debated for, for a couple of years now about, you know, is it safety first or, or how, how do we look at this? So I think it's quite interesting. We have two slightly different points of views there. I think I personally probably sit in the middle, um, uh, which is which is good for this conversation. But yeah, I, uh, I see both sides. I think maybe it's more about safety being intrinsically linked to everything you do. So it's not necessarily putting it first, but it, it is a part of every single decision. I, th- I think, Laura, I think, yeah, to your point, I think, 
it's interesting when you listen to what Nick's saying and listen to anything that I say, like we're saying the same thing, but yeah. like in different ways. In a, in a way. Like, yeah. So for me, I think that when we say things like safety first, mm-hmm. I think the moral and ethical reasons behind that are correct and right and nice to hear, you know, and it's a breath of fresh air to hear from, from Nick, from a position of a CEO to say, no, it's my responsibility. And, and that's nice to hear from a safety person because normally I, you know, I've spent 10 years being told that it, apparently it's my responsibility, but that, that aside, I think what the issue I have with it, and maybe I didn't articulate it well enough before is that it's, it's not as simple as that. That's the way we look at, that's the way I look at it is that, it's not as simple as saying profit first, safety first. Like we can't put them in one, two, three, four, five order. It's dynamic and it's, it's ebbs and flows. So, you know, one day we're doing a job where if that job is a 6 million pound contract and, but it's really, really high risk. It's the the pressure there is huge from both profit uh, and loss and, and customer relationship and safety. But if the if the risk there is really low for that job, if that's a six million pound contract, but actually it's digital, you're providing a digital project, for example, and all it means is you're managing stress and DSE, probably, then well, why would safety be first? Because safety is a really low risk. So for me, I just think it oversimplifies it a little bit when actually it's really, really complex and it's really dynamic. Sometimes safety needs to be first, 100%. You know, a lot of jobs in rail will be have to be safety as our first priority. Otherwise, we'll just be killing people left, right and centre. But when we're talking about in the office, maybe safety is not our, our first priority. Maybe employee welfare is, is part of it. But for me, it's like, there's no value in putting it first, second, third, fourth. It's just like these are our values of an organization and, and it's mm-hmm. dynamic as we go through. You I, know, th- I pre- think there's that. Yeah, I agree. And I think your, your point there about it, it's kind of one discussion and then health and safety has got to play its part. But when, when you're operating the business um, from the chief executive's point of view, You've got to look at, one has to look at things about how are we managing everything we do? So if you like, for example, you said, you know, I was in infrastructure, you've got nuclear, you've got gas, you've got power, waste Mm. management's got a, they're working very hard, but a a terrible issue with loss of limbs and all sorts of stuff from people who've got their hands in waste disposal machines and all sorts. Um, So I was in a sector that absolutely woke up in the morning with health and safety first. It drives everything. And, uh, and, and I, you know, you can literally see it. We had an incident um, uh, a while ago where, um, uh, you know, people were saying about the health and safety police, you know, oh God, it's the health and safety police, that burden. Yeah. And the utility industry doesn't see it that way. And they sent some of their young apprentices down to a site and the site blew up and the apprentices didn't come away. They lost their lives. Wow. So, so the, when, when you get a moment like that, and I'm so pleased to say I didn't have to get involved in that one, but I know the people who did, there, yeah. there is no substitute for that. I mean, what do you say to the family of a young worker when they don't come home at all because of an incident at work. Now there's legal ramifications to look at. There's all sorts of things to look at, but the impact on the business is forever. Yeah. So if you then come back inside the office, um, I think health and safety has already now started to, particularly because of the pandemic, started to get well-being to be health and safety because Mm -hmm. most people who've been around, you'll know this yourself, but when you follow the track of health and safety failures, it's normally rational people doing what they thought was rational to make a mistake. You know, they, they, um, we were talking earlier on before we came on and started uh, this interview 
about the pressures of everyday life during lockdown. Well, while those are whizzing through your head and children, parents, grandparents, everyone's relying on somebody to think for them. At that moment of thought, you may decide to turn left quicker than you normally would do, go faster to get home. It could be in an office finishing a job quicker, not thinking to um, to finish off a piece of work that needed to be done to make something safe for the people outside the building. It could yeah. be all sorts of things. But most people, when they make that mistake, did it because in their head they were making the right choice at that time. And that's where the cultural thing comes in. Unless you've got the culture, mm. right? Yeah. everybody walking it, not just the CEO and the directors, but everybody walking it. When the moment comes to make a bad choice, people have got to be able to stop and think, is this the right thing to do? And whatever the environment is, in an office under great pressure or outside with external risks, you've got to give people a cultural room to think, am I making the right choice? And if I'm not sure, when am I going to ask? Yeah. So you'll see far more through, uh, during the lockdown of people having buddying systems where mm. if people are going to make decisions and they're not sure, they can pick up the phone to someone, normally in management, and they have an option to check. And the company is completely open about saying, go on, make a mistake, ring me and tell me you're about to fail. Because what they can do is to say to someone, there's no need, don't feel the pressure, don't feel pushed into that corner, don't do it. Mm -hmm. If it feels wrong to you, it's probably wrong. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's easy to say, but to drive a culture like that takes years. Yeah. And you've got to get everybody in the business, including the ones who think it's a waste of time, to start thinking for themselves and the people around them that if you don't think about health, safety and well-being, the company cannot function as a sustainable, profitable good happy business it just doesn't work yeah 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 makes sense to me i mean and the culture piece again is is one that's huge huge at the moment and i completely agree with you a lot of it boils down to culture i mean it's um it's probably a bit of a a, a big question for for the podcast but when you were you were doing that in your last role and you're trying to get that culture to, to where it needed to be how did you go about that is that is that coming from you is that coming from the Safety professionals, you know, how did that work? Well, initially, uh, as a new CEO, as initially, it's got to come from the chief executive. So it's got to be, uh, it's got to be, uh, just picking up the discussion we were having, but it's got to be more than I expect the chief exec wants us to tick that box. Mm -hmm. So so as a chief executive, uh, let me give you some really basic examples. You know, we could talk about big, you know, big industrial things and big major incidents, but simple things like if you're walking through the office and you see a cable, that is where it shouldn't be and you don't do something about it as a CEO because you're above that because yeah. you're senior management because you've got your own bathroom in some offices whatever <laughs> whatever it is you think being a CEO is about you've just failed because yeah. it, I can guarantee you every single pair of eyes in that office is watching to see what you do mm -hmm. if you walk past and there's a wet tissue lying on the floor and you don't pick it up and put it in the bin and then go and wash your hands the next person won't either yeah it's everything you do. The moment you walk in the room as a CEO, quite rightly, and that's what you're paid to do, you are expected to walk the values you say you believe in. And people are so quick and quite, again, quite rightly so. If they see a chink in your armour, you've lost. Yeah. yeah, yeah so it's absolutely. completely in your own hands. It's your brand. You can do with it what you like. If you want to be false about it and just tick the boxes, you can for a while. But if you want to turn a culture around, you've got to live it. And the second thing then is your, is your executive team is um, basically you get to the point where you can't do it alone uh, <laughs> and, and they're going to, they are ultimately the high performing part of the business. So your executive team have got to have that same will because they want to do it, not because they've been, it's not part of an appraisal. 
but it is part of an appraisal, of course, um, to make sure people are doing its checks and balances. But it's got to be because they also walk those values. Mm. Uh, and then and then it's the hard job, which is really getting into the business and actually getting the the organisation to convince itself that being healthy, safe and looking after each other is what you do, because that's a good place to work. Not because it wins an award, not because it gets your brownie points. It, it's because it's the right thing to do, because why would you want to work anywhere else? Yeah. So I think it's um, the cultural thing is the hardest thing to fix, but it's got to start somewhere. And people are looking for insincerity. And if they find it, quite frankly, you might as well get rid of the chief executive at that point and get a new one, is my yeah. argument. Yeah, fair enough. The, it's interesting exactly what you were saying about it coming from, from leadership. We've been having a similar journey internally in our in our company, in, our, in the recruitment company, when it came to COVID measures, getting people back safely. Um, that was the first thing we said to the whole leadership team. It's got to come from you guys. If we're saying that they've got to follow these guidelines, they've got to follow these rules, and then they see you ignoring them because you think, oh, well, I'm a director. I don't need to do that. You know, you've already lost the war, haven't you? And, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so it, it's an interesting one. Um, James, yeah, I don't know if you had anything to add on that point or... I'm, I'm pondering if I'm honest on my on my experiences and I, and I think I kind of echo what Nick said there like yeah, va- values can quite quickly become platitudes you know if you don't live them and I've worked in many companies that don't live their values and you know it's, 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 it's tra- they become transparent no matter how many no matter how many walls you paint them on lanyards you print them on or coffee mats that you put them on it Absolutely. you know it, it's there yeah. and it's all the and and that's the thing with me, and that 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 is also in line with the safety first stuff. Do you know what? If I found the company that said safety first and actually lived it, and I and and actually safety was genuinely the thing that made the decisions in in the key places or in all places, then I wouldn't have a problem with it. But in my experience, it's just another platitude. Um, yeah. So if people live it, then it's true. Um, and and I think as well from a leadership point of view, it's like. What I see a lot of the time is, is you get like a CEO come through the room to, to, to use Nick's example, which I've kind of lived so many times, is that they'll do one of two things um, in my experience. They will not pick up that, that cable and go and tell the health and safety manager, officer, advisor, whatever, that somebody's left the cable out in the way and that that, that health safety person needs to fix it and make sure that doesn't happen again. And which my response is always like, so you just walked past this thing that you thought was unsafe and then come and told me about it and you could have just fixed it. Um, Or they fix it and then they try and hunt down the person to blame them and say, you, you were naughty, you were naughty, you didn't do this, Um, which doesn't fix the issue either. Um, And I think, I think just having somebody, I think how powerful would it be to see a CEO walk through the room fix something right on the spot. There's something that's not right. They fix it there and then, and they just walk on. For me, that communicates a message more powerful than anything that you can write on the lanyard or print on the wall in that if we have a problem, the CEO's value is just fix it and crack on. For me, from a safety point of view, that's everything I want. I want a person to go, this is not right. Can I fix it? No, I can't. I need help. Can I fix it? Yes, I can. Fix it. Crack on. Not create paperwork and systems and policies and procedures. Let's just get the job done. 
Yeah, and that doesn't just apply to safety, isn't it? I think that's a, just a good exactly. leadership lesson. Yeah, overall, yeah. Yeah. If, if there is if there is something that needs doing, and you you have the capacity to do it, it's very similar. Nick, yeah, again, we've been having conversations internally about you know our culture of freedom and responsibility, and it was things like that. You know, if there's there's litter on the car park, I would expect as a director, if I saw it, I'd pick it up. You know, you don't you don't then wait for someone else to do it. So it's it's leadership in all its in, in all its facets, I suppose that. Yes, and it's un- I suppose it's this, we, we were talking you know, about the chief executive role. I think, you know, it's in each individual to think, what is that role? Mm-hmm. Because for many people uh, to, re- to get the title chief executive officer on the end of your business card, for many people is the, achie- you know, the ultimate achievement in business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that why you were put in the post? Uh, you know, is that why the company employed you so that you could have a business card with those three words on? Or were you there to do yeah. a job? And, and to do a job is very hard. It tests, well, certainly in my experience, it tests everything you've got. And it tests everything you've got, whether you're awake or asleep. You know, you have the same, <laughs> the same dreams every night. You, you think about work in the shower. You think about yeah. it when you're exercising. Mm-hmm. But, but only because you're living something the company's asked you to do and you want to be the best you can at it. Yeah. So I think when you get things like this, you know, to, uh, to walk past the cable and all those bits and pieces, you may well go and say to people, I've noticed cables you know, all over the place. I've noticed handbags under desks, rucksacks under desks. Could somebody please now make sure that doesn't happen again? But as James says, you know, you're looking for someone who bends down and sorts it, turns to the person and say, next time, could you just make sure because we're trying to do this? And you're looking for advocates. You're looking for people who can walk away at home at night and say, do you know what I saw my boss do today? And now it becomes, why wouldn't you do what your boss did? Because they did it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but equally, they'll come and tell you when you're doing something stupid. And I think that's the other thing about being a chief executive officer is for many people, it puts you on the top floor. Well, it doesn't. It puts mm. you on the bottom floor. <laughs> so, so you want people to come and tell you or come and tell your team, but certainly you, when it's not going well, you don't want people tidying it all up when you come around the corner. So I suppose it's just a mentality for what you're trying to do when you go for the post. And some people, you know, in very large jobs and some quite small companies, it, it's, it's about personal fulfillment but you're employed by an organization to do something, to be the leader of a business and set a tone. That's all the job is. Uh, Whether that's profit or whether it's health and safety or whatever it is, reputation, you're still there to set a tone and you just happen to be in post for as long as you do it. And the moment you're not, you're not a chief executive officer. You're the (laughs) person you were before you took the job. Yeah, Yeah. I I think that's a really cool way of looking at actually that, you know, it's not putting you on the top floor. It's, it's putting you on the bottom floor. You are then, you are the company, aren't you? You are embedded in everything when you're in, in that position. Um, I wanted to, I did promise we wouldn't talk about safety specifically too much, but I am going to ask you a little bit more about it. Has your perception on what you would want to see from a safety professional changed because of COVID? Has that changed the way that you see their role at all? Or, or is that, I don't know if that's a, been a factor. For, for me, watching, I've stayed in, you know, despite being on my sabbatical and lying on a sunbed most days, as you can probably imagine. Um, uh, <laughs> All right, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do spend a lot of time talking to people in business still. And um, I think what's changed from the pandemic is, is the breadth of what you now need to cover. So, so what is a health and safety professional? You know, if it's that compliance point I mentioned earlier on, and there's a, a Form 12B that means you'll legally need to be compliant, you're going to need somebody who has competence, who has the training and the skills to bring that along. But if you come to the top of the 
health and safety role. I think it's a far more blurred line now as to what that means. Yeah. And I, I mentioned earlier on well-being, you know, the, the, some of the ramifications of the lockdown are going to roll on for years. We're not going to know that some of the people who've been working at home for 14, 15, 16 months have suffered domestic abuse, mental health issues, too much alcohol, poor mm. diet, lack of exercise, uh, bereavement, some of it we may know because people talk and some of it we won't know yeah. and by the time we do find out whether people can work at home constantly with their own family on the kitchen table for a year and a half two years we'll find out so a traditional fill in the form health and safety professional as some people see it is going to get moved to one side far more for somebody with very strong emotional intelligence high communication skills empathy drive determination influence because you're yeah. going to have to influence from every single level of the business including the board you may walk in with the chief exec to the board meeting but it's your influence so so you end up basically i would argue each member of the executive team whatever role they're in becomes a mini chief executive you've got yeah. to be that well-rounded or you shouldn't be in the seat yeah yeah true and, and look at look at where we've come to again laura like soft skills yet know, again yeah. it's it's the same message again. all the time isn't it? and i love it because you know it's what we've been preaching for a number yeah. of years now but it, it's nice to hear that reflected back in these conversations um, and we didn't lead, so lead and we didn't yeah i promise we didn't lead the conversation lead <laughs> I, th I think, Nick, to add some context to, to what we're talking about, I think in, in the safety profession, we're, we're having, um, I want to say battle, but that, that sounds, a bit, sounds a bit harsh, a debate within our profession as to you know, what are the skills, what is, you said it a, a minute ago, what is a safety professional? Really, what is it? I, I genuinely think it's one of the most complex roles within an organisation. One day we're lawyers, the next day we're engineers, the next day we're psychologists. How, yeah. and, and, and how can you have one person look at all three of those? Because ultimately they're very different people that are lawyers, engineers and psychologists, and they have different traits and different personalities. But where we have traditionally fell down with safety and where we struggle now um, is that softer side is the more psychological, cultural, social side. Um, and there's a big debate around, you know, should we, we, we need to do more of these soft skills and, and then people will be like, well, we're a technical profession. Um, and, and it seems to be, we're coming back to this kind of safety one debate It's one or the other. And if we're doing the same with this, for me, I think we're all going, it's one, are we, are we the softer or are we the harder? For me, I think it's both. Like if I'm building a safety team, let's say I was a director of safety, right? And and I'm sitting there and I'm right, James, you're you here's here's loads of money, build yourself a safety team. You know, I want someone who is really analytical, details orientated. Uh, they're a bit of an auditor, you know, and frankly, someone who's probably a little bit of a stickler for the rules and a pain in the ass. Like someone who's really, I'm, I get the law and, and I'm going to hold you to account. I want someone like that. I really do. And I also want an engineer, someone who looks at systems. They understand systems, understand complex piece of machinery and complex, you know, um, subjects like chemicals and fire and so on and so forth. But I also want someone who's really good at influencing and someone who's really good at softer skills, communication, yeah. empathy, emotional intelligence. You, you're singing my hymn sheet there, Nick. Um, James, do you want them all in the same person? No, I no, because I don't. I don't think you can. Yeah, that, that that's my concern. If we're trying to put too 
too much on on yeah. one person. I think it's very difficult to say I need someone that you know is is technical and legislation and you know they're they're a stickler for the rules, but also you know they're very fluffy and they know how to engage with people. And I, I don't we've we've talked about this previously about whether we can teach those skills to people. And I think we can a little bit, but people are kind of innately who they are. I'm going to have to come back on being fluffy to engage with people. I mean, so I have to say. <laughs> maybe, yeah, um, maybe fluffy was a bit facetious. Apologies. <laughs> but let, let, let's take some of those bits because um, I, I think there's a question about, we were talking earlier on about the C-suite. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think there's a difference between the person who leads the organisation in that area yeah. and the team they have around them. So some yeah. of the strongest people I had working for me when I was a director of policy in rail and, and also in the, the water industry were slightly towards the autistic end of the scale in their attention to detail and Mm. in some cases their inability to they would see communication as fluffy like they would genuinely see it as fluffy as a as an unnecessary point and the fact of the matter is on that slightly autistic end of the scale they saved our bacon every time because they missed nothing Mm. and and if and when they found something they didn't like they would not pack in yeah so so that so you can't not I agree totally with James you can't not have that skill otherwise you you miss tricks you get things wrong yeah but if you can't then if you don't have the skills within the team to then take what you've learned and break it down into the types of communication that allows every audience you've got to influence to hear you you become lobbyists and and policy people are cracking for this is they you know I know so much about my policy I'm going to get you to believe me well, it's not. It's about influencing the other person so that everything they want comes through your policy. Yeah. Your, your job is to sell. I mean, that people said to me, how did you switch from sales to policy? It's simple. Same job, different yeah. thing in the box. Absolutely. It's, it's psychological influencing. It's, it's knowing when to build total trust with people. So when you speak, they can trust what you say and know you will do what you say. And that's, that's not just psychology. That's you've got to be able to walk the principles but you've got to understand when you talk, what the impact is on the other person, where they're coming from, what's their priorities, what's their board pushing them to do, what's the other director in the team thinking at the moment you're trying to get that message across. Because if they're failing on all their numbers, mm. their financial numbers, they're going to be less well you know, able to receive your message than if everything's hunky-dory and they've got time. So suddenly the, the, the communication and the psychology of how you deliver that message becomes important so I think you need people on the team but by the time you reach director level and chief executive it's part of your expectation yeah you know that that tradition of promoting the most technically competent person to the top job works in some industries but it doesn't work in most because that's not the job anymore yeah yeah very true Mm. very true yeah. So I, I'd encourage people if you know they're looking to get if people are saying I want that job in the C-suite, you, you have to round yourself. You need to understand what investors think. You need to understand what environmentalists think, what the yeah. trade unions think. You know, it's your job to understand what the staff feel in the jobs that won't get the bonuses and won't get the, the change of salary every month, but but your business depends on them. As much as it is the high performing, you know, bringing new business, um, break a new market, all those things shut down a difficult complaint, all those high flyers. Mm. They're only high flyers because the rest of the business gives them the material to do it. Yes, that's true. Yeah. You know, it's to say, I don't think it's um, I I take that you've got to have a well-rounded team. But by the time you reach the top, if you want to be at the top and the business wants to be good, your expectation is this person can now do the lot. But they'll be stronger in some skills than the other, which is why you then train 
and yeah. you train and you train and you train. And being in a C-suite job means it's like being an athlete. That means when you wake up in the morning, your job is to read everything you can, to train yourself constantly, to cover your gaps and make sure that anything you're bad at, you learn. And where you're exceptionally strong, you might back off a little bit to give yourself time to go and learn. But that's the job. You're a yeah. top performer. And as I say earlier, if you if you really don't want to be in that mindset, then don't do the job. Go somewhere, yeah. you could be happy and go and do something else. Yeah. You should be pushing yourself every single day to make yourself a more rounded individual than you were yesterday if you want to get those jobs. It's a, it's a really interesting way of looking at it because I think there's sometimes a misconception, isn't there, that the more senior you get in a business or, or you know the closer to the top you get then you're meant to be an expert and you know it all and that's that's it but actually you're right it, it's a constant journey isn't it it is something you're, you're always developing I you know I always say I do I do say on on LinkedIn that I'm a you know a health and safety recruitment expert but nobody's an expert nobody's an expert you know I, I, we spend a huge amount of our time on professional development on like like you said on upskilling you know i'm doing a qualification at the moment you're reading legislation you're attending events it is a constant journey um and yeah and, and so i completely agree with you i think that those who think they are you know they know it all they, they've done it they're they're at the top they probably aren't the people that we want in, in yeah, and, and yeah. people and it's, it's it's a journey thing this to use that awful phrase but it's a journey <laughs> because, because they may have been the people of the past and done very well at that and that doesn't mean they were wrong mm -hmm. it just means the demands of business has changed and coming back to that question you raised earlier about the pandemic side of it you know it, it's quite clear that some people are going to be going back to businesses where they haven't seen the other person apart from video for around 18 months mm. by the yeah. time we get through this so what you've seen on the video what you think you've seen but that's not the person. So, so the people working in that business are going to have to be psychologists, to use your word. You're going to have to understand every morning you wake up to, to listen to every signal around you to make sure that what you think is the business is the business. And where it will show its ugly face will be in health and safety when it goes wrong. Yeah. Uh, and it may be uh, personal issues. It may be family issues, but it could be the ultimate things that we get of, you know, deaths and serious accidents. And the other thing I just wanted to say, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I just want to pick up something else James said was about no, that. please, we love the rabbit holes. Carry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that thing about, it, I, I understand completely that if you're in health and safety, it is a very specialised craft. It is. It's incredibly complex and everything's hanging on it. But, but when you get to meet other crafts um, and your organisation does this as well, you meet procurement. Yeah. If you go yeah. into the world of procurement, it's ditto. It's incredibly specialist. It's incredibly technical. Uh, it's incredibly important to the future of the business. It can de mm. determine profit and loss. It can determine risk. It can. And by the time you talk to those individuals, the ones that are reaching the top of procurement, the best way I can describe them would be a special advisor to the chief executive. Right. So okay. they're so conversant in the whole of their business, they're almost advising the company how to drive their strategy. Well, that's no different to health and safety. A really strong top person in health and safety is guiding the future strategy of the business. They are part of the board strategy. They set the tone for where the money is going to be invested. Yeah. And the job of the chief exec is to allow all those voices in. So as you go around, you know, HR at the moment, you know, we've used that term of HR, human resources, for a long time. Lots of people are ditching the title now. So they're director of people and yeah. a human, we had human capital for a while. But if you go into the craft of human resources, 
it's exactly the same thing. The very, very best ones are often made chief executives afterwards. Because if you don't get the company's resources right of the people, it doesn't matter what the core job was, you're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there's a the silo, as it were, of health and safety. If, if we were blessed enough to sit in a conference room safely and meet those other traits, whether it's an engineer, procurement or wherever, they'd all say, we're like that. That's exactly what we're like. Yes. Yeah. Completely agree. Sure. And we, we've mentioned this before because weirdly, at HC Recruitment, we've got uh, two sister companies, one who do procurement recruitment and one who do HR recruitment. So we've seen this over the years. And it, it's kind of where the idea came from for this, this session of talking to CEOs, because we do see HR people step up into CEO. We are seeing procurement definitely get to C-suite and potentially into CEO, but we're just... We're not seeing it as much from health and safety. And I don't understand why, because those three um, areas, they, they well, well, they should, in a good company, integrate, you know, a huge amount. I mean, particularly procurement and health and safety. That's that's a huge thing. It, you know, if you're buying in bits of machinery and you're not interacting with your, your safety team, that, that's a huge, huge risk. I think but, it fundamentally funds. Sorry, Laura, go on, carry no, on. Carry on, carry on. Um, I think it fundamentally comes down to how we perceive safety. I think we perceive safety very compliance focused, very tick box. It's yeah. quite it's quite an easy thing for us to do because ultimately compliance in its rawest form is in theory quite easy to do, or what people perceive they to perceive, be compliance yeah. is is quite easy to do. Right, risk assessments, yes, tick box, audits, yes, tick box, yep, grand, cool. Um, so why would you want somebody like that on your board? Because yeah. really, that's a very easy thing to do. Yeah. But actually, it's nowhere near that. You know, I haven't <laughs> I haven't ticked any boxes in many many years, and and wherever I have, it's never delivered actual safety. So I think I think the fundamental issue is how we perceive safety, and yeah. and safety, and therefore by extension, how we perceive the safety professional. Yeah, I think you're preaching to the converted there. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Laura, I don't know if it's just okay to sort of chip in. One of the things I, I've been blessed with um, in my career is I've had very few bosses that haven't been good. Um, and I, I can honestly say that most of my bosses, not all, uh, are still friends. Um, they inspired me and they, they let, let me see that their way of doing things was a way I wanted to follow. And from each one, I've taken a little bit. And you bring it all together and that sort of toolbox forms the way I do business. Um, but but there, you have the choice as a member of staff not to work for a company that doesn't represent the values you believe in. Now, you may not be able to do it straight away because you've got bills to pay like everybody else. Yeah. But the reality is the worker has never had more power than today to mm. choose the people that do what they say they're going to do. And I think this is this point about um, the person who makes it to the top of health and safety has got to be a communicator a bit of a yeah. politician. They've got to understand the corporate affairs of the business because if they can't get the business case across, they're holding back the entire health and safety team. Mm-hmm. So you find yourself a health and safety professional you want to work for. And that person will start to lead you into areas where your craft is exposed more to the board and to the chief executive and so on because they're a good boss. Mm-hmm. And you don't say so you don't have to leave the company to get them. You, you can get yourself under the wing of people you feel you're inspired by. But the second thing is the company, the last, certainly the last few companies I've worked for, I've also been blessed by board members and committee members, audit committee members, who don't just take my word for it. So they're very polite and they say, Nick, next time we have a board meeting, it would be really nice if we have a buffet lunch, obviously pre-COVID, um, we have a buffet lunch. Why don't you just bring along 
the team do health and safety so we could just meet them and say hello as a board what they're really saying is nick we're going to check everything you've told us for the last six months <laughs> yeah if they don't echo what you've said you're in trouble <laughs> and god bless them for doing it because it's things like that that make you go home at night and just check yourself and think if i was a board member and i was looking for my achilles heel where's my achilles heel mm. that's not a failure that's not that's not admitting failure that's checking yourself as a professional yeah. to make sure you're doing it right and you will be doing something wrong or not as well as you could do yeah so then you have a shower in the morning and think about it some more when you go in that day you come up with a plan and you never stop coming up with a plan but it's but so you can have boards and committees um senior executive members who can find clever ways of just testing to see whether what the rhetoric is is truth mm. yeah and if yeah. it's not, it'll come down like a pack of cards. It might take a year, it might take five years, but it'll come down like a pack of cards. Yeah. I would like to ask a question that's not, not it's completely left field. Go on and, then. And completely change the subject to a point. But you, <laughs> Go you, on you, then. you talked about. I'll like, take a drink for this one. Yeah. <laughs> A strong one, Nick. Because if you got the answer, yeah. if you got the answer to this, I tell you, you need to put it in a book and sell it. Um, I so so in the safety profession, you mentioned about talking to boards and boards making sure that what we do, what you're doing as a CEO, is is actually what's happening. Which may which which sent me down a little bit of a rabbit hole in my brain, and that we. In the safety, so there's emerging science. There's uh, there's like a little pseudoscience called safety science, right? There's loads of academics and people, and it's not just safety science. There's loads of other academics doing loads of work, and we are seeing as safety professionals lots of emerging kind of reports, white papers, research papers, peer-reviewed papers, lots of conversation around accident and incident reporting not working. It's yeah. not delivering what we yep. think it's delivering. Mm-hmm. But you'll know as a CEO, accident and incident reporting, TRIFA rates, LTI rates, things like that, you know, where we take the amount of industry, we times it, divide it by the amount of hours and all that stuff, and we deliver it to board, right? This is fundamental to what we have done for many years. And most safety professionals that I talk to, they get it. They're like, yep, the research says this is the better way to do it or, or at least to start looking for ways to do it better. So, but, but pretty much just start telling your board, sorry, but the accident incident reporting is not telling you that we're actually safe. It actually, it's worse. It's giving you a false sense of safety. You think you're safe, but you're not. Um, And you can see that from, you know, I could list loads of accidents and and disasters that will tell you that, but you've only got to go and watch the film Deepwater Horizon uh, on Netflix to to understand that this is right. You know, counting these accidents don't deliver safety. But fundamentally, the people that I talk to come across the same problem, Nick, is that let's say you're the CEO, we're coming to you and we're saying, Nick, we don't want to give you this accident incident data. The CEO goes, yeah, like, you're giving me it because I need to know you're safe because I feel like it tells you, you don't know any other in a way. That's how you've been told for many years. This is what we're safe. So the question I'm kind of giving to you is if I came to you and said, Nick, let's say I'm your director of safety. I come to you and say, Nick, we've just read a couple of uh, safety papers that say this stuff is not what we think it is. How can we move forward? What What would you be kind of thinking as a CEO? Well, the, fir- the first, if somebody was looking to change the way um, the company did health and safety. The the compliance side I was talking about earlier on, that that forensic form filling, 
uh, is what basically keeps the chief executive out of prison. Yeah. You know, let's let's be blunt about it. Yeah, yeah. If if you make the right mistake, the wrong mistake, but the right mistake to get you in the right position of regulation or the courts, you are going to prison, uh, and you are probably, possibly, rightly going to prison mm -hmm. and whatever it was you caused may have caused irreparable damage to the life of people who put their trust in you to come to work every day yeah so so as a chief executive the first thought in my mind to answer your question james if someone was to say i have a cunning plan that that, that dates me unfortunately to baldrick but bear with it you can <laughs> you can get it on all reruns if you want, you'll get into it. um is, is the first thing i'll be looking at is protecting myself as a chief executive to yeah. make sure that the compliance side was covered and i'm not vulnerable to actually making some form of major failure by ignoring the data that's coming into me that's been built over years. That yeah. would be my immediate gut reaction. The second thing I then want to do is to understand the position of the person who was giving me that feedback. And when someone says to you, you know, there's a, a new way of thinking, uh, I've read a paper, um, I've got a thesis, or just I've been watching the culture of our business and we're monitoring the wrong things. Yeah. The question then is how do you let them try to test their theory in a safe way, mm. but give them room to fail. So you're probably going to say, uh, take a small group offline and try with the business to see whether this way of working might work or get your company out and about. Obviously, a lot easier pre-COVID, but out and about to meet the companies who've got those ideas and just listen. Hear what they've got to say. Talk to them. Talk to their workers, ideally, and see how they feel. Because often the management may have a cunning plan, but maybe the people who are actually delivering it don't feel the same. Yeah. So, so I think from that point of view, then, there's a measured way of dealing with it. But it's unlikely that what somebody comes up with is immediately going to turn around everything you've done for 20 years. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very likely that there's a smarter way of doing it. Yeah. And, and for me personally, because I've been in a utility infrastructure background for a long time, they have a, a system called test and adjust. So you don't do test and fail because you can't afford to fail. The consequences are too high. But you test something and then you adjust your processes to suit. And then you test a bit more. And, and you keep going and you keep refining and you keep getting better. Um, but there's plenty of room in many, many businesses to try that new line of thought or the paper that's been read or the, um, the, the, the just intuition that says we're measuring the wrong things. And yeah. that's where it comes down to this chief executive. If they're a closed book, if they don't want the hassle, if they don't want the workload, they're the wrong person because it doesn't have to be them doing the job, but they do own it. It's their responsibility, it's their accountability mm. to let the business breathe enough to go and find what it needs to do for the next five years. But mm. I, I would come back to that point as um, the, the breadth of what surrounds you as a chief executive, the requirements of you are so wide that the immediate reaction can be, I don't really want to change anything. Does this still protect me? That's yeah. okay as long as you don't vocalise it. Yeah. I, just been I, I think you've touched on a really important point there, Nick, and that's something I've been trying to tell people because – that there is a moving, there is a moving kind of trend towards this stuff. So that there's one particular book that comes to mind that that kind of gives an example of you know pretty much taking a pretty um, dramatic step of of just removing all accidents yeah. in investigation investigation and not telling the board about it whatsoever. And for some people that has worked, and you know a couple of big companies come into mind and it works. And I get that. But I think for most people, to your exact point, 
I think what it does actually is it just scares the living daylights out of the board because yeah. that is their psychological safety. That's what makes them sleep at night. Whether we know it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. But for them at the moment, that's right. That's what tells me I'm safe. So it's kind of like that old adage that my old boss used to say to me is, yeah, yeah James, you keep coming to me with problems, but what, what, I need some solutions. You know, so it's kind of that. Yes, we're being told that it's an incident data reporting, et cetera, is not really um, delivering what we want. That's fine. We we also need to go to the board with something else, um, which most people do. And but, I think that if you if you take um, most businesses have an absolute health and safety target of zero fatalities, don't they? And zero categories, certain categories of accidents. Now, obviously, we're, you know, we could be talking about anything from retail here to trains to, you know, I, I realise we're trying to cover everything. But but if yeah. you take that basic philosophy, by the time you get yourself to board C-suite level, most companies have a philosophy of zero deaths, zero serious accidents. Yeah. And then after that, you have to be realistic that you can't avoid everything. Oh, so that's then a, you have to work oh, out. So good to hear, Nick. Yeah. Thank you very much. Like, I thought you'd like that, James. I, went, I was when you said zero, I was like, oh my God, he's going down a zero harm route, and I don't know how I'm gonna <laughs> deal with this. Um it's it is so good to hear you acknowledge we can't remove harm because there's so many people that are just like zero harm, zero harm. You I, I can't walk down the stairs without hurting myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Stub my toe or, or get a paper cut. It's yeah. not realistic to your point. So sorry to interrupt you, but it was worth interrupting. Thank you very now much. That, and that's, you're making exactly, you know, we're, we're, we're absolutely mirroring each other on this. It's that you have to look, so, you know, one of the things would be if you take a zero target for fatalities and serious harm, you then have to look at what are we trying to achieve in the company at that top level, including the board. You know, so, so what is it we want to achieve? And if someone says it's zero fatalities, it's an obvious thing. Of course it is. But achieving zero is going to require you to model the behaviours of your business and understand where fatalities might occur. Now, again, I'm blessed to come from an industry mostly in my career where that's that's the every waking hour. That's they live and breathe it. They genuinely do. And they still get fatalities. So, so, so you start that way and look at the demands of the businesses and the weakness of the businesses, and then you work to model those out. And that will naturally bring in areas where you're saying we're stale. We have run out of new ideas. And somebody will say, I was only at a conference last week or on a Zoom call, and someone said there's a new philosophy on this and it drives culture. Mm. And that's where culture comes in so much apart from compliance. You get the culture right, you'll get the compliance. Mm -hmm. So, so by the time you get down to sort of accidents where you will never get zero, people normally set themselves a 2%, 4%, whatever it is. But the process is exactly the same. Whatever the target, you've got to model the exposure your company has to understand where it's likely to go wrong, which will tell you whether you're measuring the right things, which will show you the culture that's causing the problem in the first place. And then you may have to admit you're not very good at a company, as a company, sorry, and understanding what to do next, the psychology of it. And that's where you go out and about. And, um, you know, when I was in utilities, you know, they're talking to Formula One, they're talking to the post office, yeah. they're talking to other utility companies, they're everywhere trying to get, they're trying to crib the best idea, they're trying to borrow and, you know, mm. take intellectual capital off people to do anything they can to drive that next level. Mm. Because you're, you, you cannot sit in the chair of a chief executive and not wake up and try everything you could possibly do to send the people who work for you home in the best possible condition every day. You, that's the, the reason you're appointed. Accepting money and sustainable businesses and environmental performance, all that's the job. 
but you a fundamental starting point and show me a board that will go on public record and say that I'm not saying the right thing here. Uh, and let's have some fun with them if they do. But there is not <laughs> one that doesn't want to go and have a zero problem in their company. And they want high performance, high efficiency, high profit, high everything else. But it all starts with health and safety. It isn't a tick box. It's everything that drives a successful business. And you see it all over the place. Yeah, I love how passionate you are about this, Nick. It's, it's great to have, have someone come on and really be genuinely passionate about health and safety while sitting in in a role, you know, outside of that. So, uh, so yeah, some really good insight there. Mm. Yeah. Um, where are we for time? I've completely lost all track of time. How long have we been talking? It's, um, it's half past midnight and I've just finished <laughs> I, think, I think we're there or thereabouts, you know, James? Oh wait, okay. I've, yeah. I, I was looking at it going quarter to seven, quarter to seven. When did we start? When did we start? I have no yeah. idea. I'm when conscious you've got your little one's first day of nursery. You gotta you gotta go and see yeah, her. Yeah, we'll see how she is. Yeah, I haven't so seen her on. since God, when did I see her this morning? I don't know, it was like eight o'clock this morning she left. Oh, so I'm pining. Well, I would say, James, it's just just as a sort of litmus test for us, because I you know, so you've got other things going on as well. Is is if the things I've said to you you know, honestly, genuinely look at it and think, well, okay, it's all very nice, Nick, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure the, the real world's like that. I, I promise you that if I was to walk you around the utility infrastructure companies I'm telling you about, the overwhelming majority, and it would be the overwhelming majority, would be having a similar conversation that we've just had. They may not phrase it the same way, they may not use the same examples. Yeah. But, but they have been chosen for that role because of the need to make a business long-term sustainable by keeping everything in balance. Now that doesn't mean yeah. they don't have horrible mistakes and horrible issues, but, but that's what they're there to do. The more companies are driven by investors and strong boards and customer panels, more and more we're seeing the customer actually forming part of the company governance. Yeah. Trade unions, I mean, their experience, I just cannot speak highly enough of trade unions from my experience with them. Their knowledge on health yeah. and safety is second to none on culture. They do compliance very well. But um, you know, again, I was blessed to work with the, the, the big unions um, in the utility sector, and they're just remarkable at it. They really yeah. love it. So, so I think from that point of view, if anyone's listening to this and they think, well, OK, you know, Nick's got one angle and that's him. Uh, yeah. I, I'm talking about multiple, multiple billion businesses that mean all your heat, all your light, all your power, all your trains, all your roads, everything. Everything that powers UK PLC is run by the infrastructure businesses, everything. And I, I would honestly struggle to write down on a piece of paper people who shouldn't be in the job because they don't believe most of the stuff I've said today, not maybe everything, but the vast majority. It's their mantra. How, how do you know that with so much confidence? What do you do to have so much confidence? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for a particular answer, but I'll be curious to see what you come up with. Like you, you say this, and but but how do you know that? What do you do to make yourself that confident? I spent probably in the last twenty years of my career, I've spent more than ninety percent on the road. Didn't need to; that wasn't the job. Um, but where I was working with customers, I uh, spent my time meeting their apprentices, their graduates, their boards, their non-executive directors, their investors their regulators, their government sponsoring departments, trade unions, because you hear, you hear the truth. It may not all be from one side, but you can work your own picture. Um, then when it comes to things like um, talking to the customers, 
uh, again, I used to work for a statutory customer body. The customer will tell you what the answer is. It's just whether you want to listen. And they'll tell you whether what's being broadcast is what's actually happening. And, and the, then you've got to go and say, and um, if you do things like I've worked in a number of representative bodies where you represent very large brands, trade association work, and it's no point, you, you know, you cannot walk in, for example, to a regulator and tell that regulator that you believe your members are compliant when the regulator knows they're not, because you'll never, ever, not just in the job you're in, but for the rest of your career, you will never walk back in their room and be trusted. You might as well give up because you're not going to, they'll ne- they'll always remember you as a person who went in there and gave them a line. So your own personal brand is everything. So it's in my interest to go out and pull threads. It's in my interest to go and ask. It's in my interest to go in the boardroom. It's in my interest to drop in the cafe on the way out and ask some of the people behind the counter what's happening while I'm buying a sandwich. Love that. It's in my interest to meet the guys out in the vans and the people on the telephones and just ask a few questions that are a bit pointed. And you don't need to embarrass people or let, you know, let anything out. You just know. And the honest answer is, if what you get back means you can't trust what you've been told, then I would never stand up for those companies and say it's true. Because if I did, I wouldn't get another job. Yeah. Or not in that sector anyway. They just wouldn't trust you again. So your own personal brand is yours to do what you want with. Um, you know, it's the one thing you have complete control over because you can't control the rest of business. It's up to you how you choose to behave and how you choose to portray yourself. And if people don't want to employ you, that's fine. Somebody will sooner or later who wants to do it that way. I feel th- I like there's such a, it's really nice to hear. And I and to kind of summarize it, how I would put it in much less eloquent terms than what you have is, is, is get off your ass, get out the boardroom and, and look <laughs> yeah. beyond the rag charts and the, and the spreadsheets yeah. and the PowerPoint presentation and go and talk to people because that's how you find out. So, so, so in summary, get off your ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good, good and that's probably why I'm not a CEO. Honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I think that's something that will be um, kind of music to many, many of, of the listeners Definitely. ears and that mm-hmm. they're, they're all trying to say the same thing. And, and if I'm honest, Nick, actually, I think that you, you've kind of throughout this, a, a, a little bit of a, I can't think of the right term, but a little bit of a call to arms or a call to accountability for a lot of CEOs out there that it is your responsibility and you need to get off your ass. Um, And it's really refreshing to hear from another CEO kind of shout out to other CEOs. Some of you may need to do a bit better than what you're doing right now. So I I think that's been really interesting. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. No, yeah, really thank good. you for joining us, Nick. Re- really good stuff. And uh, I'm sure James was was very pleased with the nice words you were saying about trade unions, weren't you, James? Yeah. I don't, think, I don't well, think Nick knows where you work. I work for a trade association, so I work for the Glass and Glazing Federation by day, so I'm their head of safety. Um, and, yeah, I think to your point, they're under they're undervalued, in my opinion. Like, they're, they're powerful community tools, they're collaborative tools, that you know, and we as a safety team within that, 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 uh, federation, you know, we're, we are so well placed to have some real powerful impact. And, yeah. and I think within the UK, I don't think we utilize trade associations well enough. I think we maybe perceive them as a little bit old school, little bit of men in smoking jackets kind of thing, <laughs> but they're not that anymore. If whether they were at any time, I don't really know, but you know, now I don't think they're that at all. They're, they're real communities that want to drive better business and better industries. I, th- I think without without 
having another ad um, together on this. But one of the things about trade associations, there's some very good reports out about external, you know, as a trade association, your job is to represent someone. So yeah. whether you're doing that effectively is in the eye of the beholder, not in the eye of the trade association. Yeah. So all the people you're trying to convince, if they can't tell you you're convincing, then you're not a good trade association. <laughs> yeah. So when you talk to politicians, for example, trade associations are often lobbyists. Yeah. And you'll hear the term, they go to the lowest common denominator or the member who puts in the biggest fee gets to say the most. Yeah. So depending on what you want to run as a trade association, and my last body we represented the members, but we weren't a trade association, but we did bring them all together, was our job was to be a credible and trusted advisor. Now, that often meant falling out with the members. And then it's down to your skills on how you fall out. But you cannot afford to go and look someone in the eye and authority and say your members are all sparkly and shiny when they're clearly not. Yeah. And if your members don't like that, don't be part of the association. Go and spend your money somewhere else because I'm not walking in to a government minister or a health and safety regulator, whatever it is, to yeah. tell them everything's rosy when it's clearly not. Yeah. So, so the personal credibility of the trade association, I think, is as good as their ability to be a credible and trusted advisor to all whilst representing their members. As soon as they're a lobbyist or a mouthpiece for the industry, personally, I'd, I'd just take the, the membership money and spend it somewhere else because you'll get a better bang for your buck. Mm. Yeah. No, a, a call to arms for the, uh, a call to accountability for the trade associations as well. I like that. This whole thing was a call to arms. Very, very moving. So, yeah, ha- hashtag get off your ass, I think. Was yeah, it. Nick Summary says trade associations and all the chief executives in the world get off your ass. Well, thanks for that. You've, been, you've ruined my career. It's a good job. I'm on a break. I'm going to cut the whole podcast and just have that last bit. Nick <laughs> says, on a loop. get off your ass. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, um, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at this point, I would normally say, Nick, do you want to give us a little shout out to your company? But at the moment, your company is a sabbatical. So I'll give you an opportunity. Is there anything that you do want to give a shout out to anyone you're affiliated to or or just something you want to close out with? Well, I think in the case of this particular piece, because to say I'm deliberately, you know, I chose to, to take some time out to be with my family and pursue some things I've never had a chance to do in my career, which has been wonderful. I, I think I'd focus on the health and safety community that we're talking to, which is that thing you were saying about a call to arms is to think what the profession is about. Health and safety is an instrument to what? And that will then as a person, as a professional, decide the skills you need to get to that end goal. So if it's about just health and safety as a profession, a profession tick here, that puts one demand on you. If it's to influence others to reduce the harm, that is going to require a completely different skill set. So I'd strongly encourage people to take a look at themselves as an individual and take a look at themselves as a brand, as a person, that, you know, the words that come out of your mouth, the way you choose to analyse problems, the way you interact with the team, the way you view external challenges and dramas and incidents, and just ask yourself, am I the sort of person I would want to employ in the future to be absolutely bomb-proof when that moment comes? And if you can do all that or work towards it or just be a little bit better, your chance of employability will go through the roof. You might actually save someone's life. Wow. There we go. No more needs to be said. (laughs) Thank you very much, Nick. (laughs) Laura, do you want to close out your last session as quarterly co-host? I know, I'll hold back the tears. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, the, the session has been fantastic. So, yeah, thank you again, Nick, for joining us. And thanks to, to Janet and Richard, who joined us on the previous two as well. Um, I think it's it's so interesting how each 
uh, each session has gone off on completely different tangents, but mm. there's been those overlaps. There's really been those overlaps about the soft skills, about communication, um, that, you know, about knowing where you want to go with your career and, and, you know, aiming in a certain direction. I think it's been really, really interesting to see that come up sort of time and time again and definitely echoes what, you know, what we've been saying in, in the recruitment market for the last few years is, isn't it? Those are the sort of things you've got to look at. Um, you know how I feel about personal branding, James, you know, that's a, a favourite subject of mine and, and that massively ties in as well. Uh, you know, yeah. that we know there is a perception issue with health and safety and we, we need to change the way that we personally and we as a community are being seen. So, um, so yeah, all of this has been really, really helpful. So thank you so much for inviting me along to, to do this for right. this quarter. No, no pressure to your next presenter. But. I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> I'm, I am really excited about this 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 little quarterly co-host idea, which which is just if I'm honest, it was my wife's idea. Um, I, I came up with like I want to do something with a co-host, but I'm not really sure what it is. Um, and then she came up with a quarterly co-host, and I was like, my uh, my wife always says to me, James, behind every successful man, there's an amazed woman. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And right. on that note, <laughs> thank you very much, both of you. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, beeps. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Again, last but not least, thank you very much to Laura and the HSC Recruitment Network for having, for coming on, for being our co-host, for coming up with the idea, for doing the work behind the scenes, for finding the guests and helping us come up with this content. It's been great fun. I've enjoyed it. And the people you've found and got us for guests have been amazing. And it's been really cool to have somebody else kind of asking the questions, having a bit of a three-way chat about it. And and this has been really interesting because I had a recruiter, a safety professional, and then a CEO or a, or a kind of operational director in the call to really kind of hash out some of those discussions that we safety professionals are talking about all the time. So it's been a fascinating mini-series, fascinating quarterly co-host series. Thank you very much, Laura. And thank you very much to all the guests that we've had on. I look forward to the next one. So what is the next one? The next one is a gentleman called Rob Fisher. Rob Fisher is prominent in this new view space. He runs a podcast called the Essential Leadership Cycle Podcast. And he's going to spend three episodes telling you how to do what you need to do. This is a step-by-step process. We're going to take you through how to get started. Could you have asked for any more? No guess, no nothing. Just Rob telling you step one, step two, and step three. Everything you need to know to get started to be better at safety, to have better leadership, to have that essential leadership cycle, so to speak. So I'm looking forward to that one. I'm looking forward to Rob being a co-host. I'm looking forward to just having three good in-depth long form chats with Rob. It's going to be really interesting and a completely different style to the last quarterly co-host. So it's really interesting for us to see how this is work and, and how diverse it's going to be and kind of what's popular and what's not, so to speak, from you. So it's really important that you feedback to us and let us know. And you can do that on any of the social medias coming onto your screen right now. And Hit me up on LinkedIn. It's where I'm most active. Drop me a DM or just email me at james at Rebranding Safety if you want to chat, you want to be a co-host, you want to do a quarterly co-host, or maybe you just want to come on and chit-chat on the podcast, whatever it is. Don't forget to check out, don't forget to check out www.rebrandingsafety as well. You can go get your merch. You can do some work with us. Maybe you've got a brand or a service that you want to promote. 
in front of a massive audience of safety professionals and people that manage risk and safety, then check out what we can do for you. We can do brand videos. We can get podcast work, sponsorships, whatever it is. Let us know and we'll work out how we can increase your brand awareness via our audience. Don't forget to check out Project Miletium as well. If you're a safety professional or you're managing safety risk within your operational role, it is the place to be for mastermind, professional, I'm forgetting how to speak today, professional development, absolutely everything you need. And honestly, it's growing and it's growing quick and you're going to want to be there because it's just, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. So I can't even put into words how good it is. So go check that out. And finally, if you're an SME and you're looking for some support around safety, don't forget to go and check out Paradigm Human Performance and check out their webinar, The Learning Organization, as well. So thanks for listening, everyone. I'll catch you in the next podcast. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson. <laughs> <laughs>